want to start just with a moment of silence before I read this scripture. And uh, here, here's what I want us all to practice. It's a spiritual practice in the church uh, for, for many centuries. Um, wh- what, if, what if the God of the universe um, was, was right here with you? And there's a, there's a portion in, in Psalm 40 that says, uh, he, dig, he digs out his ear for you and wants to hear from you, wants to hear from your heart. Um, that is the, the testimony of God's Spirit. The hard part about us is that we only believe in things that we can see, touch, taste, and smell. Um, but God is invisible. And He's invisible in the book of Esther. Um, but He's more present than you are to yourself right now, even when you don't realize it. And that's, that's why we pray. Um, we're, we're seeking to bring into our awareness that, that God, God's here. Um, and he can give you more pleasure and joy than anything you've ever known. And so that's the great testimony of Scripture. And so I want to uh, spend some moments in silence and think about that, meditate on that, and then we'll talk about this text. So uh, let's pray. Lord, the things that dominate our minds are not only um, distractions, but they are being used by you to draw us to yourself. And that's what this passage of Scripture is about. We cannot get away from you, that you govern all that comes to pass, that you are involved in every intricate detail of our mind and thoughts and actions and circumstances. And there's so much of our lives, Lord, that we live and we forget that because your presence seems hidden and invisible. And so I, I do pray by uh, the power of your spirit that you would open up our eyes and open up our ears to the kingdom of God that's in our midst, to the gospel of the kingdom that is eternal, that unites us and connects us to people who know your Son, who've lived in ages past and who will live in the future, and that we would be tapped into this story of Esther that seems so remote from our present circumstances, and that you would enliven our spirit to see that this is actually our story too, that we can connect to you through it, that you reveal your beauty and your goodness through uh, this story. And so come now, Lord. Uh, We cannot do this without you. We are dead without you. And so come and make us alive. In Christ's name, amen. I was even trying to think about, you know, it's so challenging to talk about the Bible or to be a Christian and not use the name of God 
Like if you try to think about how, how to pray without using God's name, that's what the book of Esther is doing. And it's, it's a rhetorical literary device to basically show that, especially when it seems like God is nowhere to be found, that he is hyper, hyper present uh, in the hiddenness of his orchestration of our lives. Now, if you're, if you're a child here, or if you're an adult and you have access to talking to your parents, uh, I have some homework for you before the semester starts. I want you to go home and ask your parents how they met, okay? And maybe some of the challenges of how they met and how they began to, to come together in a relationship. And I know this is a very bizarre thing to think about, but if they hadn't met, uh, you would not exist right now. And that's somewhat crazy. I was talking to my dad today, and I was asking him questions of how he and, and my mother's relationship began. And uh, if, a, if a few things hadn't uh, changed, um, my father would have married a, a Filipino woman. And he was in, in the Air Force during the time of Vietnam. And I've often thought, I'm like, I wonder if that had gone through, if I'd be like half Filipino or if I just wouldn't exist, you know? And a scientist would be like, well, of course, your DNA would be different. But, you know, that's a question for the Almighty one day. Um, but my dad said when he got back to, to the States, and he was thinking about re-enlisting and he didn't, when he met my mom, he was everything that my mom didn't want to marry. And uh, I told, as I, as I listened to their relationship and how it began, I've told my parents multiple times, I was like, if you were in the congregation that I was the pastor, and I was doing your premarital counseling, and you wanted me to officiate your wedding, um, I would have said no. And I tell that to uh, couples that I'm doing premarital counseling with, just so that you know, like I get things wrong all the time, you know, pastors do get things wrong a lot. Um, but the reason why that's important is that I, in my own experience of my life, I would have negated my own existence. You know, I don't know, I don't know how God works in the present circumstance. Now, one of the beautiful things about Scripture is that there is never, ever a misstep in God's plan. Like there's never a plan, there's never a plan B. And this is a doctrine that we believe uh, that Esther teaches, and it's called, it's called providence. And very simply, provident, God's providence is the way by which he governs everything that comes to pass. One of the leading scholars on the book of Esther names uh, Karen Job. She says, providence means that God, in some invisible way, governs everything through the normal and ordinary course of human life. Now, that is one of the most practical and hard-to-believe things about our existence, that everything that has happened in your life and everything that will happen is being governed by the hand of God, that your decisions and His governing work in a tapestry to come together to form what we call history. The human experience, the cosmic story. Now, this is the beginning in our story. This is the beginning of how God used an orphan girl to save the Jewish people. And what we see here is that if this didn't happen, the Jews wouldn't be here, nor Jesus, nor this church, nor any church. And so, 
Look at Scripture, and we're just going to look at the first 12 verses for this first section. And guys, uh, before we get into this, this uh, if you have an ESV version, it's so hard to pronounce this king's name. And the, there's a Greek version of the Bible called the Septuagint that names him Xerxes, and that's easier to say. So we're going to go with Xerxes today, okay? So Esther 1, 1 through 12. Now in the days of Xerxes, the Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces... In those days, when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. And while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, and when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks, this is one of my favorite parts, drinks, and we're talking about wine here, were served in golden vessels, Vessels of different kinds. The royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and the drinking was according to the edict, and there was no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Now Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs, and at this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. All right, we're going to stop there. Um, maybe you're thinking, what in the, <laughs> what in the world is going on? Uh, that's sort of uh, the response that it's supposed to elicit. I, I want to look at how epic this party is, okay? And I want, I want you to see how powerful Xerxes is, the vastness and the limits of his power. So this opening passage is the setting the stage and giving us the context for the story of Esther. But what Xerxes is doing on, on the ground level and in history is he's throwing a massive, incredible party. Like better than anyone we've ever been to. And the author's intent is to impress us with the extent of Xerxes' wealth and power. He had 127 provinces. That was a lot of provinces. It went from uh, Sudan to India up to Turkey and south to Egypt. It was big. It was a big, big reign that he had. And he feasted for 180 days. And he was showing off his stuff at this feast in verses 3 through 6. And there was a lot of drinking, lots and lots of drinking. Verses 7 through 8. Um, the, it was, this party was lit. That's what we would say today. And it stayed lit for a while. It was quite a display, and then the text turns to the queen at the time, Vashti, in verses 9 through 12, 
And on the seventh day, when all the men were drunk, verse 10, King Xerxes says, Bring Queen Vashti out to us for this stated purpose. Verse 11, so that me and my men here can look at her. Look how beautiful she is. Um, you know, Queen Vashti wasn't interested in being oogled by the king and the men. Verse 12, no surprise there. <laughs> and here is the first irony about the kingdom of men. Xerxes had all the power in the world, in the known world at that time, but he couldn't control his own queen. He couldn't even control his own home. And sometimes it doesn't matter how much money and power you have, and you guys know this, you guys know this, we all know this, uh, the human will cannot be controlled by force, no matter what you do to a person. You can't control the motivations of another human being. And Vashti was the holdout, and throughout uh, the, the entire Persian Empire, and he was the most powerful person in the world, this one tiny person with this one tiny decision basically threatened the entire empire. Um, the, I'm from Augusta, Georgia, and we were there about a month ago, and there's this golf tournament in Augusta. We call it the National, if you're from, if you're from Augusta. And the National, the, the saying, if you're from there, is that it has an endless supply of money. It can buy anything it wants. It doesn't need your money. The, uh, the myth is that Bill Gates wanted to become a member at the Masters, and they're like, we, we, don't, we don't have room for you, and we don't need your money. Well, they keep buying up all of the property surrounding it, and we were driving by about a month ago, and they had purchased these two neighborhoods and wiped out all the houses right by it so that they could park there, except for two houses. And I was asking my friends, like, well, what's up, what's up with those two houses? And... Uh, He's like, they won't, they won't sell. They're the holdout. And um, if you were to, and I would encourage you to do this, if you were to Google a map of ancient Persia, or if you have like a study Bible and you look at it, 486 BC, you, you would see that the, the vastness of the empire has one tiny holdout that it doesn't control, and it's Greece. Persia was unable to conquer Greece, and the reason why is because the Greeks whooped up on Xerxes' dad, whose name was Darius. And so there's a, there's a Greek historian named Herodotus that, that says that Xerxes is throwing this party with, a, with an agenda, and it's to, it's to accrue a large army so that he can go avenge his father's defeat. This is a quote from a from this historian, he says, On my father's behalf, this is Xerxes talking, On my father's behalf, I will punish them. And I will never rest until I have taken and burnt Athens to the ground. And then, he who goes with me, I will, I will show you that the, all these lavish gifts that you see here today will be yours if you appear with me with your best army when I march against Greece. So he's throwing this big party so that he can maintain power with this one holdout. Now, the point of this vignette with Vashti is to show that even though he has that great power, and he's got all this wealth, and he's got all this money, um, he doesn't have control 
of his queen. And that sets the stage for Esther coming on the scene next week. This is the context for a Jewish orphan girl who will meet Xerxes and she will become the second most powerful person in the known world so that she can save the Jewish people from genocide. That's what's going on behind the scenes. But in the moment, what's happening in the moment is that no one would have guessed that Xerxes' lust and narcissism and Vashti's refusal to be objectified was going to lead the way for the saving of God's people. But that's what's happening. Um, Do we have any knitters in the crowd? Any crocheters? No? Really? No, we got one in my home. Um, This is how God's providence works. He takes human action and decisions, and he weaves them into the fabric of history. And what I want you to know is that that's what he's doing with Xerxes. That he's taking Xerxes' drunkenness, his impaired judgment, his narcissistic display of wealth, and he's weaving that into the human history of his redemption. Now, um, you may there, that raises all sorts of questions about like the problem of evil and how God works. But you know, it's like the yarn trying to comprehend its purpose. All the yarn knows is that it's being twisted and stuck by needles in the present. And until God's finished, we can't see the hidden plan that he's making. In fact, every scholar says that when we read Esther, we are supposed to ask, what good could possibly come from this? And where in the world is God? Now, as a pastor, uh, you come upon that question with people all the time. When they look at their lives, when we look at our lives, and there's all sorts of situations that we wish would change, and we ask the question, what, what good could possibly come from this? And where in the world is God? You know that this church, Redeemer, came into existence because another church called Covenant burned down. That happened the night after my sister-in-law was married in that sanctuary called Covenant. So in essence, my wife's family, if they hadn't burned down the church and offered me their other daughter's hand in marriage, you'd be without a church and a pastor right now. And you may say, well, that's not true. You know, we'd buy another building or get another pastor. Yes, but that's not what happened. What happened is what is happening right now. Now, you you take that in your own life, and you think about the tiny, intricate details that led you to this exact moment right now. Why? Why why is this happening? Why Why do you have the kids that you do? Why don't you have the kids that you long for? Why are the things in your life that you wish would go away, why are they still there? Why is the world like it is? Why is the church like it is? And God's pressing in on you and he's saying, I am there. Wherever there is for you. This one decision of Vashti sets in motion a chain of events that culminates in the deliverance of God's people. And it seems so insignificant at the time. It seems tragic for Xerxes. And the point is 
that God wants to get glory. God wants, God wants worship. And the conquest of the human heart took a lot more strategy and wealth than what Xerxes was showing off at the time. And I want to read the, uh, the rest of the passage. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I will pronounce these names somewhat in a comprehensible way. Verse 13, Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, according to the law, what's to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of the king Xerxes delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the name to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes, and let the king give her royal position to another that's better than she. And so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. And he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Okay, what that passage is showing is the absurdity of man's power as opposed to the beauty of God's power. In, in his insecurity, Xerxes gets his cabinet of lawyers together to give him legal counsel, and they suggest that a law be passed because these women are going to get out of control. That's what's happening. And so politics gets involved to keep the women in line, and the law was passed to ensure that all these women within their home don't disrupt the social fabric of the Persian Empire. And what this last section shows us is the absolute frailty of man's power when it's threatened. And it only gets more and more and more absurd. And you might be like, you know, I'm so thankful that we don't live in a society like this, where the value of men depends on how much money and wealth they have, and power, and the value of women is tied to their beauty. I'm so thankful we don't live in a world like that. I was at a pastor's conference uh, about a month ago, and the leader of the, the speaker was asking a group of pastors, and he said, what do you think is the most important thing about leadership? And, you know, we're all a bunch of pastors, and so we're all just like servanthood, uh, being, being a servant. And he was like, yeah, that's a, 
That's a Christian response, but that's clearly not the world's response to that question. Being a leader is being able to influence other human beings. Being able to, in some way, control the actions of others. And what this passage shows us is that as much power as Xerxes had over the known world, he could not control Vashti. All he could do was pass a law, and this is very, very different than God. Look, whenever you're called to uh, lead in any realm, you may be on a team right now, you may be a parent, you may be a leader of an organization or a business, but oftentimes you're put in situations where people will ask you to basically bend the will of other human beings. They will say, Mom, Dad, make, make him stop hitting me, you know? Or if you're a leader of an organization, you're often brought into meetings and, and people are asking you, can, can you make these people stop being so selfish, essentially? And one of the challenging things is that, you, you know, somebody comes to sit and says, like, you know, can you help my spouse or my friend or my parent be less self-absorbed? What you realize as a leader is that, a, you know, a person can't actually change another person's internal motivations. Like, we can be used by God to be the instrument of change in others, but we are, we are actually powerless over what the human heart does internally. Just like Xerxes with, with Vashti, like he could, this is the bizarre thing, he could have killed her for disobeying him. But he did not have power to make her respect him. So you put in situations like this all the time as a pastor, you know, a husband comes to you and says, will you help, will you help make my wife respect me more? And there's a host of reasons why that request never, ever works. But the real problem in that scenario, when people try to change the behavior of another person from the outside, is a failure to believe the gospel which is that it is only God and God alone that has the power to change the will of a human being at the heart level. Y'all, this is is the way that God enacts change in a person that becomes eternal. This is the way in which a human will can get altered. That He comes to you, God comes to you and says, look, I know that you don't love me. This is God's testimony in your life right now. He says, I know that you don't love me. I know that you don't respect me. God is Lord over the universe. Have we been acting from the moment that we woke up to this moment here today that he's as good as he actually is? Of course not. We have already acted so selfishly today that we deserve to be condemned, you guys. That's the terror of God's wrath. And God is pressing in on you and he says, look, I know that you're not present to me. You're not even thinking about me. You don't want me in your life. And God comes and says, but I want you. And I'm not going to let what goes on in your heart 
refuse the way in which my love is going to pour into your life and change the world. That God is so bound to you that He inserts Himself within the providence of your life through the incarnation. And He says, I actually want to be with you physically. I want to be with you in your heart and physically, and I'm coming. And it doesn't matter whether you respond or not. That His love for you is independent of your response to Him. That is the most bizarre thing in the world. And Mordecai will tell uh, Esther this later on in the book of Esther. He's like, look, if you, if you don't want to get involved with God's plan here, he's going to raise somebody else up. He's not as insecure as Xerxes. He can do what he wants to without you. And don't you want to be a part of what he's going to do? See, God has the power to change the will of another human being, and we can't do that. We desperately want to. This is why we get so angry. This is why we get so anxious. It's just like the world isn't going the way that we want it to do. My children aren't doing what they want to do. My parents are just terrible. You know, it's like, yeah, 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 that's true. Is God here? Is God working that into the orchestration of the gospel which is being displayed in your very life? Yes. This is how God changes the internal will of a human being that he is the king above and ruler over all kings, and all sin is rooted in the disbelief of God's goodness in the orchestration of your life. All Xerxes could do to make people obey him was to create laws and, and, and do it by force. But God requires and gives so much more than what the kingdom of man can give. And what God really wants from you, <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't just want you to obey Him. He wants you to want to obey Him. He wants your duty to be changed into choice. Now, how can we do that? We can do that by beginning to rest on His loving providence in your life. Because of the work of Jesus Christ. I was teaching my children how to ride waves at the beach a couple weeks ago. And, um, you know, waves, when they get high, at a certain point, there's a, there's a trick that you, can, that you can do so that you don't drown in the ocean. But it was the first time my children really felt the current of the ocean. And uh, if, if you've ever been in waves that are, that are really high, if you do this counterintuitive thing, it actually... It actually works, and it's that when you're far enough out before the waves break, if you stop trying to fight the wave and you relax your body, you can actually easily float over the wave. The danger comes when, and it's hard because when you see the wave, you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, but if you get frantic and you try, and you try to swim, it'll, it'll flip you over. And so I tell my, I tell my children, just, just chill. Just relax. And when they learn to do that, they can float over the wave. Now here's the story of the Gospel of Esther. There is no escape from the Persian Empire. You can't get away from it. You cannot get away from the empire of this world because it exists in here, y'all. And the waves are not going to stop coming. 
the suffering is not going to stop coming. The things that you struggle with are not going to end in this life totally. And what you must learn to do is that in the midst of the kingdom of this world, there is another kingdom at play. Whose river makes glad the city of God. God is in the midst of her. And God is in the midst of you. And Jesus says, if you have ears to hear and eyes to see it, you can rest in the midst of this world. Whether it's the Persian Empire, the Roman, or modern America, or your own broken story, he holds it in the palm of his hand. And he places you in the midst of it in this particular time, in this particular world, so that you can embody his calm, faithful presence wherever you are. Before he gets you to change anything in yourself or others, what he wants you to learn is that he wants you to be near him. He wants to be with you. So, as we uh, make our way through the book of Esther, what we're going to learn is that the gospel can change in us the disposition of how we face the world simply by knowing that he's there, that he's here right now. So we're going to see that in the coming weeks. I'm going to pray, and we are going to confess sin and then come to the table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Even though it seems very distant and remote at times, the reason why we open it in all of its parts is because you reveal yourself that each book of Scripture is like a facet of the diamond of the gospel that we can see different angles of your glory and your beauty. And so would you... uh, Would you speak to us continually throughout this day that you are involved in the intricate details of every person's life, including our own, and that we would marvel at that. We would marvel at your providence and the mystery of you uniting everything about us into your son, Jesus Christ. And so would you do that today? In Christ's name, amen.